And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. It's 6.06 as we get this uh, Monday edition. Second week of May underway. Of course, uh, yesterday, Mother's Day. Did uh, you spend some time with your mom yesterday? Had a great time. What'd you do? Went to see my mom. Yeah, I mean, did y'all go out to dinner or anything? Oh, no. No. No, not on Mother's Day. Really? No. You made her cook? No. no. <laughs> we all chipped in. The, all the extended family got together. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, well. So my my wife, Mother's Day. All right. Well, I took my wife out to dinner last night. Yeah. And uh, nice dinner. Very busy. Oh, right? yes. Lots of people back out mm-hmm. now. Right? Everybody's celebrating. It's nuts. So, yeah. So, I mean, economy's definitely coming back. But interestingly <laughs> enough, right, we saw on Friday... A job report that was a bit disappointing, right? It was expected we were going to create over a million jobs. Morgan Stanley had 1.25 million jobs uh, estimated for Friday's employment report. Came in just a little over 200,000. Of course, big disappointment there, uh, naturally, of course, as everybody was expecting a lot more. And this has put a lot of concerns into, uh, of course, the outlook for the economy as well as what the Fed's going to do. And interestingly enough, one of the bylines of this is that where the jobs were created were exactly where you would expect them to be, right? In leisure and hospitality, right? That was the largest area of job increases in that 200,000 job, uh, 200, job number. Now, it wasn't just the fact that, you know, Friday's employment report was weak. Last month, the month of March was also revised down as well, not nearly as strong as was expected. Of course, this brings up a lot of the conversations that we've had here lately. And of course, now we're starting to see this in the data that, well, maybe these extended unemployment benefits that we're doing are keeping people from going back to work, especially if they get more in unemployment than they actually do working. They're opting to stay at home. Now, I know that's shocking. I mean, most people would expect that individuals would much rather work than stay at home and be paid to do nothing. But, you know, just in reality, uh, you know, humans sometimes do things that don't make any sense at all. And this is one of the problems with a lot of economic theory. I'm writing an article right now. Paul Krugman out uh, in the media last week doing an interview with uh, Business Insider. And, uh, of course, uh, discussing the fact that we just need to do bigger. We just need to do more deficit spending because that'll solve the problem. Well, we've been doing we've been running a national deficit since 2009 of, of, of between 500 and a trillion dollars. Now we're approaching, you know, three and four trillion dollars on our deficit and things aren't really improving. So it doesn't really suggest that more deficit spending is solving the problem. And it certainly doesn't suggest that, you know, paying people to sit at home is working as well. In fact, the Chamber of Commerce has now actually sent a letter to the Biden administration saying, hey, let's stop paying people to stay at home. We need people to get back to work. If you want to create a job recovery, if you want to create an economic recovery, and this is basic economics, people have to produce first. They have to go to work and produce something, create a paycheck, then they can consume. And that's what creates organic economic growth long term. But of course, this is something that's, that's been really missed here over the last decade as we've shifted more and more towards socialistic policies. You know, uh, sending checks to households is, sounds great in theory, but in actuality, it doesn't create the outcome that you would expect. Recycling tax dollars 
doesn't create more organic economic growth. So this is one of the things that we're going to be challenged with here as we go forward is trying to balance this idea of you know, letting economics work as they should and getting people back to work ultimately. And then at some point, you've got to remove the support levels to a degree that encourages people to go get a job because once they go back to work, they start producing, that's where you create economic growth. And surprisingly enough, that's also where you create tax revenue that also supports your social welfare system, et cetera. So, and speaking of social welfare, um, because of all these handouts that we're now giving out, social benefits as a percent of disposable incomes. Now this is the income that people have left over after they actually work and create a paycheck, pay their taxes, what's left over to spend, right? That's their disposable income. Well, social benefits now make up 42% of the average disposable income, right? So government handouts are now making up over 40% of what people are, have to spend on a disposable income basis. So it just kind of goes to show you how we've kind of skewed things to a large degree. And again, when you look at really what's happening with wage growth, wage growth, you know, it showed a little bit of a pickup last month, but is weakening overall as people start to go back to work. Despite the fact right now we've got a labor shortage um, because of the, so many people sitting out on, on, on sidelines, we're seeing wage growth in lower end wage workers, such as service workers, uh, restaurant workers, et cetera. But in your upper and, and middle and upper end of income earners, those wages actually still remain suppressed here because again, there's still some bargaining power at those levels. Okay, quick thing here before we get back to, uh, you know, other topics this morning, of course, uh, Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live over the weekend. Everybody very excited because he was going to maybe say something about doggy coin. Yes, it's doggy coin. That's why there's a dog on the front of it. But <laughs> um, Dogecoin has been running rapidly here over the last couple of weeks. People are very excited about it. And of course, Elon Musk has been tweeting about it. So is Mark Cuban. And of course, this coin, this is a coin that actually has no benefit, no purpose, no support whatsoever. It was created as a joke, and yet everybody's buying it. Kind of shows you where we are within the current market cycle. Well, <clears throat> Elon Musk, I guess you would say bombed, maybe. I mean, it, it wasn't the, the skits were pretty boring. I mean, well, <clears throat> it is Elon consider Musk. Consider the source. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, not surprisingly, apparently, people that were long doggy coin didn't like it either because that <laughs> coin was down like 40% um, pretty much after SNL was over. So, But Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency, is now hit an all-time record. It's over $4,000 a coin as of last night. So that surged just in the last month over 100%. So again, it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation in these cryptocurrency markets right now. And of course, that's really what's been uh, kind of driving that. It's just really the pure speculation of it. Okay, so real quick about the markets here uh, before we get to the show. Um, over the course of the last week, we finally broke out of this consolidation range, very close to triggering a money flow buy signal. We will get that signal today. Uh, again, if the market remains up today, it looks like the Dow's going to open about 113 points this morning. S&P is going to be up about three or four. So not strong open, but if we can finish up today on a positive note, we will trigger that money flow buy signal. Very close behind that, a uh, couple of days of rally this week, we could actually trigger the MACD as well, get kind of a confirming signal here. And that's going to give us potential lift here over the course of the next couple of weeks. This is likely going to be a very short-lived signal because as we start looking at our weekly indicators, they are getting very overbought here. 
So again, probably have three or two to three to four weeks of uh, potential market upside here. As we get more into late May, June, I would expect to see some more weakness here. Now, what, what's going to trigger that? You don't know, but <clears throat> probably some more disappointing economic news, et cetera. And plus, just the fact that we're starting to push into summer. Markets are extremely extended from long-term means. You have some technical deviations as well that suggest you're going to have a correction sometime this summer. How big, how much, how exactly when, don't know what's going to cause it, not sure, but just kind of how markets cycle over time. Just pay attention to that. So again, there is some upside here. Not a lot of, of point here to chase markets at this point, but there is some upside here uh, momentarily, probably limited. But as we get further into summer, I think that's where we're going to see a little bit more risk pick up. So but we'll keep you up to date on this as well um, as we go along. And of course, uh, every week on our Technically Speaking uh, uh, reports that we send out by email, we'll talk about that as well as our weekly newsletter where we talk about all of our positioning. Subscribe to our newsletter on the website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Just simply click the newsletter link, put your email address in, and we will put you on our email list and send you both those reports every single week. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, and we'll be right back for more of The Real Investment Show right after this. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing. The vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for health care, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. Yeah. And welcome to the show this morning. So um, one of the kind of the interesting stories over the weekend, of course, was the shutdown of Colonial Pipeline. Now, this is one of the largest pipelines that run from Texas to the East Coast and uh, ships a variety of fuels, uh, gasoline, aircraft fuel, et cetera, diesel um, up to the East Coast. In fact, it supplies about 40 to 45 percent of all the supplies that the Northeast needs for fueling cars and trucks and planes, etc. So a very important pipeline from Texas to New York. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> all these people pushing for green energy. <laughs> Things go wrong real quick when the pipeline shuts down. Uh, but why did the pipeline shut down, right? That's the question, right? It's very interesting about this because it was a ransomware attack. Right now, if you're not familiar with ransomware, this is where hackers get into your system and they say, well, if you don't pay us you know, X amount of dollars in a Bitcoin wallet within a certain period of time, we're going to lock up all your computer system, right? And we're going to take all your files. And apparently that's what's happened. And so... They're trying desperately to get, you know, the hack taken care of so they get the pipeline back in, in action, of course, and get fuel flowing again to the northeast. But this really kind of brings up a couple of different, uh, you know, things to think about, right? Right. 
Um, we've talked about in the past that, you know, we're, we talk, you know, uh, when it comes to warfare, right, that the next world war is likely not going to be fought with boots on the ground. It'll be a cyber warfare. And so, and I, I'm not, look, I'm not saying that this was a hack by the Russians or the Chinese, and I'm not saying any of that, right? But, you know, it is interesting that this is, this is exactly the type of scenario that, you would do in the midst of a cyber warfare attack, right? You would shut down essential components of society, right? Water, fuel, electricity, internet. These are the type of things that you would that you would attack because you know there there's a drawback. It's great, you know. This is one of the drawbacks to technology. It's great that we're getting all connected, right? It's it's fantastic, right? We've got the world, of, we've got the world of knowledge in our hands, and and we could be becoming smarter and as individuals. Um, but instead, we just you know sit on toilets and tweet mean things to people we don't really know. Um, but we're so connected and so dependent upon technology now. It's also a weakness. And this attack on this pipeline really kind of shows that to be one of the problems that we really kind of need to think about. And because we are vulnerable, no matter, you know, <laughs> I, was telling my, I was telling my wife over this weekend that if a tech company was really smart, they would hire my wife. Because if you can create technology that my wife can use, you would have a great piece of technology. <laughs> Is that a left-handed compliment? It's kind of a left-handed compliment, but no, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, TV remotes and things like this. Hey, I feel you, man. And they're, you know, it's, <laughs> I, you create a system that my wife can use effectively and she can do everything she wants to do. You got a, you've got a piece of technology, right? I mean, that's something that you're going to sell a lot of. Whatever that is, you should hire and, and fix it. So we got one of those universal remotes. Yep. Can't you? That's, what a joke! <laughs> it takes three to operate it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but you know, this is but this is the thing about technology, right? Is we're so dependent on it now, and you know, we think that we can build things that there's an old saying, right? If you want a piece of foolproof technology, hire a fool. Because there's always somebody that's going to figure out, no matter how secure you make something or how secure you think it is, there's always some guy out there or gal or person that is going to figure out a way to hack it and break it. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this piece of technology is completely <laughs> break proof. You know, the Titanic was considered unsinkable at one point. Yeah, hold my beer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but this is this, but this is an interesting thing to think about. I mean, as 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 you look at what's happening with this pipeline now, this is a very important aspect of the economy because all of a sudden, gasoline prices are now surging in in up in the, in the Northeast because they can't get access to supply, and this is a, a way. And again, I'm not implying anything, right? I don't want you to run off the lances, you know, conspiracy theories. I'm not saying anything. What I'm saying is, is that this is the type of stuff that is a risk that we kind of overlook to a large degree. We love technology. We love the connectivity of it. We love all the, the convenience that technology gives us. But there's a risk of it as well. And this is a good example 
of what can happen in a cyber type attack. Now, just imagine that this was every pipeline in the country or every electric grid in the country or the you know entire water supply system. I mean, you just kind of go down the list of things that can happen. So we kind of look at this and we go, wow, you know, this is a this is a terrible thing. I mean, you know, you got a pipeline that got hacked. It could have been a lot worse. And the reason I bring this up is it's not just and again, it's not just this that we're talking about. We you know, we always talk about what is it that can trigger another major kind of mean reverting event in financial markets. Right? What what could happen that could create an economic trigger in the financial markets. This isn't it. It's small, it's isolated. But these are the type of things that we don't you know. We weren't talking about this Friday, right? This happened over the weekend. And this is what we failed to kind of understand. When we get very exuberant about financial markets, we forget that things can happen that we don't anticipate or think about or even talking about. You know, by the time that the mainstream media is talking about anything, it's generally not something that the market is going to be impacted by. The markets are very good about pricing in risk that they know about. It's always the unexpected exogenous event that occurs, things that nobody is thinking about that causes mean reverting actions in markets. And right now, markets are extremely extended. We've got some of the biggest deviations in history from long-term means, some of the highest levels of valuation, so forth and so on. I mean, we just go right down the list. So all the triggers are there, right, um, to cause a mean reverting event. All you need is something to actually pull the trigger. And that's one of these events that occurs that nobody's thinking about, right? And just think about this. Last March, in March of 2020, we had a 35% correction in the market. It wasn't a bear market. It was a correction because we never broke long-term trends. But we were so deviated above the long-term trends, it took a 35% decline just to come down and retest that that long-term trend support line that went back to 2009, that bullish trend. We're now that extended again, which means a 25 to a 30% decline just to retest long-term trends. Certainly well within the, the realm of reality. But you got to have something that triggers it. And, and last March, nobody was counting on an economic shutdown, right? I mean, nobody was even thinking about that. Yeah, we knew in February about the virus. That was all over there in China. Nobody really cares about it because it was over in China. It's what they get for eating bats. <laughs> Surprised Alice Cooper never actually got the virus. But- Aussie. Oh, sorry. Uh, did I say Alice Cooper? I'm yeah. sorry. Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Correct. I knew what you meant. You know what I meant. So, see, you got to be old to, to actually get that right. joke. So. Okay, Boomer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, nobody was counting on that to occur. We knew about the virus, but nobody expected everybody to sit there and go, hey, let's shut down the economy. This is an idea. <laughs> this, this is a novel approach. Let's just put everybody out of work all at the same time. What's the worst that could happen? So those are the things that occur. 
and we never count on them. And this is the problem that we have now is that we're very exuberant about markets. We're very we're extremely overconfident. Individual investors now have more exposure to equity markets than at any point in previous history. Right? So the risk of financial devastation is there. All you need is something to trigger it. And again, we don't know what that is. But this is but the thing that pops up about this issue of the pipeline is that this is one of those things that you go to bed on Friday night feeling good about your portfolio, you feel good about your financial situation, and Monday morning you wake up and you go, what the hell just happened? And this is why it's always important to manage risk to some degree, because you never know what it is that's going to pop up that triggers a financial reversion in the markets. And unfortunately, because we have everybody crowded in the equity theater right now, that exit to the door gets very narrow very quickly. I mean, there's only a few people that are going to fit through that door when you're trying to sell something. And when the buyers evaporate, now remember, in, in a market, what what is always determinative of price is the number of buyers versus the number of sellers. For every transaction, there has to be a buyer and seller. So you can't execute a transaction if there's no buyer at your price. You want to sell Apple at $100 a share, and there's nobody willing to buy Apple from you at $100 a share. They're at 70 That's where you're going to execute. And so the problem becomes is that when that panic hits the markets, the buyers evaporate. The prices drop markedly trying to find those buyers. And in a market that's is so extended and so overbought and so leveraged to one side. When the time comes and sellers come to market, the buyers are going to be nowhere to be found. And that's why you're going to wind up with a very sharp reversion very quickly. I mean, this is one of those things where you're going to be down 25, 30% over the course of a couple of weeks rather than a couple of months like it used to be back in the old days. Um, it's going to happen very quickly. So this is why it's important to always manage your risk now more than ever because of the lack of liquidity in the markets. When it comes, you want to be prepared for it. Be right back after the break. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing. The vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for health care, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Lance Roberts saw a great uh, picture over the weekend, showed people protesting about, you know, just protesters out and talking, you know, just kind of the civil unrest that we have going on around the general country. And so it shows this 
this woman holding up a sign over her head because they're protesting, right? And it says, unemployment benefits support working people. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Oh, it's, it's really <laughs> scary. People are out walking around. <laughs> Can't make that kind of stuff up. Nope. Um, you know, it's also, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, this is kind of, the impact of shutting down the economy is it's had a wide ranging number of effects across, you know, the country. And, you know, we've had disruption of supply chains and supply lines. And uh, it was interesting. Uh, so we've always had very good experiences with Harry and David. And so every year they're expensive. They're very expensive. Right. But the products are always really good. And so we've always and my mom has a loves fruit. Right. So we'll always, you know, kind of every, you know, special occasion will buy my mom a basket of Harry and David fruits and have them sent to her. And their pears are fantastic. And so Mother's Day was coming up. And so we ordered a box of Harry and David peaches and other assorted goodies in there for her. And and had it delivered to her. And she got it. She sent us a picture of it yesterday. And all the fruit is completely rotted. Just a complete, yeah, the, the, it was just an absolutely disappointment. It's very unusual for Harry and David. He usually has extremely high quality. Now, here's the only thing. Now, I don't have any explanation for why this is the case, except for this. We have a shipping problem right now, right? Ports are closed down. Trucking has a huge shortage at the moment. So, you know, not surprisingly that, you know, probably this box of fruits or whatever got put, you know, onto a dock somewhere, getting ready to ship and set there for far too long. And so the end product, of course, was, was rather disappointing. But that's part of the, you know, issues that we're, facing in the economy right now you know just an inability to obtain certain items semiconductors we've been talking about this for a while by the way if you go go drive by a new car parking lot right like a new car dealership looks like in looks like a church parking lot on a thursday <laughs> afternoon the one right next door. Exactly. It's sad. It's it's very sad. There's no option, right? If you want to go buy a new car right now, you you go to the dealer and say, I really like that car, but I have it in black with uh, white interior. And they're going to say, no, you can have that car because that's all there is. And if you want another car, tough, right? There are no other cars to get. And by the way, don't ask for a, you know, try to, to negotiate a deal on the car. Don't try to ask for a discount. You're going to pay MSRP plus <laughs> at this point. I mean, there's no incentives, you know, on cars right now because there's a demand for cars, but there's no supply of cars. Now, here's what's interesting about this. And this is all due to the semiconductor shortage, right? Then we were, as we were talking about a minute ago, you know, we like all these cool technology gadgets because we have to be connected all the time everywhere period right even in our cars we got to be connected now well those all require semiconductors and now you can't get them and so you if you can't get a semiconductor you can't build a car right so now here's what's interesting automakers are saying hey we got to make cars <laughs> We got to get some inventory out there. So how do we do that? Well, they're doing it by taking away some of those technological advantages. 
this was an article out this morning. I'll just read from here. Automakers like Nissan are leaving navigation systems out of thousands of vehicles. Oh, my God. My daughter will never get to work. <laughs> navigation systems and vehicles would typically have them do or are, are, are due to the shortage of semiconductors according to a new report from bloomberg dodge rams often also no longer offer its 1500 pickups with an intelligent rear view mirror oh my gosh my wife will never get back into the garage <laughs> trust me <laughs> That backup camera is a lifesaver. <laughs> Somehow that garage leaps out and just hits rearview mirrors all the time. Don't know how it occurs. Um, Peugeot is reverting back to analog speedometers for its 308 hatchbacks. And General Motors says it was building Silverado pickups without a fuel economy module that would necessitate chips. Do you know what's going to happen? What? These, these kids are going to have to learn how to read a clock. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> or it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a huge revival in 1969 Ford Mustang muscle cars. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> which had no semiconductors in it and a stick shift, which is a guaranteed theft-proof device today. So uh, a spokeswoman told Bloomberg, given the fluid nature of the complex issue... Employees across the enterprise are finding creative solutions every day to minimize the impact to our vehicles, and we can build the most in-demand products as possible. Well, they're in-demand, but they're not going to be as fun, I guess, or to say whatever, because this is going to be maybe one of the kind of ongoing issues. Semiconductors are a, an interesting component to society because you have to grow the silicon. You can't just build a new fab plant. Uh, you know, we were playing a clip last week here on the show of the Intel uh, interview. And right now, there's only basically one manufacturer of, silicon, uh, of semiconductor chips in the country. And so Taiwan Semiconductors and others are building plants in the U.S. to start building more semiconductors. But this takes two to three years, years to get built up online and start production. You can't just flip a switch because you have to grow the silicone. You can't just flip a switch and start producing more semiconductors tomorrow. It's just like, hey, well, let's just, why don't you go produce some more? They can't. It just doesn't work that way. But this is one of the byproducts of something that occurred because of the shutdown and because of a fire in a Taiwan semiconductor uh, semiconductor plant, et cetera, it's these these kind of these one-off effects that create problems within the overall supply chain that have ramifications across the uh, across the entire spectrum, and this is what's led to used car prices at record highs. People are paying astronomical prices to to buy used cars. If you've got a used car sitting in your driveway that you've been thinking about selling and don't and don't need to buy another car. <laughs> This is the time to sell it. You're going to get maximum value for that used car because people are buying that there's no other cars to buy. And this is going to be one of the interesting, you know, outcomes of this over the course of the next couple of years, right? Which has some positive negative effects. So let's say that you go out today and you buy one of these cars without a navigation system in it. No problem. You can get one. 
the value of that car when you go to trade it in will be a lot lower in the future because it doesn't have a navigation system and everybody wants navigation, right? So you're taking away an important component of a car that leads to future value. Now, look, you can get away without intelligent rearview mirrors, things like that, but navigation, that's an important one. So this is going to have long-ranging effects. People are overpaying for used cars now. People are overpaying for new cars now. And we've spent the uh, last several years of people running out and buying cars. We already had you know, booming car sales here over the last several years. And there's what's called a replacement cycle. And what happens is, is that cars get to a certain age and then people have to replace them. And some people do it more often than others. But we got to a point several years ago during the financial crisis where people were holding on to cars for a very long time because of the financial crisis, they couldn't afford to go buy a new car, et cetera. So we went through this phase where as the economy finally recovered, people started going out and finally buying new cars and used cars and things like that. And we had this replacement cycle. That replacement cycle has been going on for a while. So there's a real risk here to the automobile manufacturing that if you don't solve this supply chain problem here fairly soon, you could lead to another cycle where people go, you know what, I'll just hold on to what I've got because I can't afford to buy a new one or there's just simply no new ones to buy. And you wind up with a drag in auto sales here over the next few years as people kind of begin to lock up on buying new cars. So there's a risk to automakers. And it's not just the components of this. this is you know this is a problem for a company like tesla as an example which has a lot of semiconductors inside of their car i mean here's a car that's you know very semiconductor driven can't get them can't produce them what do you do so you know there's going to be you know the ramification and it's not just semiconductors right we're seeing this through all areas of the economy right now where you know, this, this inflationary pressure due to lack of supply, lack of ability to deliver, broken supply chains, that's really starting to impede the ability of people to make ends meet. And particularly when you start to look at food costs for some of the same reasons. You know, when food starts making up 20, 25, 30, 40 percent, as it does for lower income individuals of their overall discretionary income, choices have to get made and that all impacts economic growth be right back after the break Listening to the Real Investment Show. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing, the vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for healthcare, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. 
This is a public service announcement brought to you by The Real Investment Show in conjunction with Black Rifle Coffee Company. Things you won't hear Texans say. Hey, you know what we need in this state? More defense attorney billboards. I kind of wish my horses would read more socialist literature. Mmm, skinny jeans. Right? Hipster butts drive me nuts. Now, why the hell would anybody ride a horse when they have a single speed? Right? Single speeds don't buck. Things you won't hear Texans say. We now return you to our regular program. And welcome back. So today it's uh, 648. So let's talk about being better business people. You know, one of the things that you know we talk a lot about here on the show is you know the benefits of capitalism, um, how to succeed with capitalism. You know, things you've got to do, and and you know it's kind of an interesting when it comes to investing, right? This is one of the things that you know people struggle with a lot, and you know they do okay for a while. They get into you know they they start investing in the markets, and the markets are just kind of going up. It's kind of one of those markets where no matter what you buy, it just goes up. And it works great for a while, but then something eventually goes wrong. But the question is, is, you know, how do you be a successful investor long term? And that requires a lot of work, as with anything. You know, investing, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a, a doctor or a lawyer. I'm not de- denigrating these professions by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you kind of learn one discipline, right? And, and you learn that discipline. You master that discipline, and you're very good at it. Investing, you've got to, you know, it's one of the most complicated games on the planet, right? You've got currency risk, economic risk, uh, political risk, you know, uh, financial risk, you know, interest rate risk, uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, you've got to know so much about so many different things to be successful long term. Now, I'm not talking about the course of a few years. I mean, if you get into a rip roaring bull market, it's easy to make money. But over the long term, you know, where you span a couple of cycles, this becomes a much more challenging game. And this is why so few people are actually successful at investing long term because they wind up running into a bear market and wind up losing a big chunk of money. So it just it just kind of happens. You know, Jerry Seinfeld, um, arguably one of the greatest comics in history, you know, had the Jerry Seinfeld show show about he created a show about nothing. Right. Very successful. Um, he had a he had a mastery over his craft, and what he would do is is he would get one of these big calendars that had the entire year on one page, and he would put it up on a wall, and every day he would write jokes, and every day that he wrote, he'd put an X on that day of the calendar, and after a few days you would have a chain of X's. And after a couple of weeks, you had a long chain of X's. Then the job became no longer writing every day. The job became not breaking the chain of X's. That shift is an important shift. They say to become an expert in anything, you have to dedicate 10,000 hours to it. And... That's a true statement. I mean, people that master their craft, people that are very good at their craft long term, they master that by putting the time and effort into it. 
And that's when you when you read these articles on, you know, kind of mainstream financial media is like, oh, you can just spend five minutes a week with your portfolio and you'll be fine. Yes. In a bull market, that is true because you don't have to do a whole lot during a bull market. When the bear market comes, you better understand, as we were talking about in the last segment, understand how to manage risk because it's those exogenous, unexpected events. That's what you've got to be prepared for. Steve Cohen, who, who uh, broke away from Goldman Sachs and started SAC trading back in 1999, he traded only one stock, IBM. All he did every day was analyze everything there was to know about IBM. And when he thought he had an edge over something, some piece of information on IBM, he would trade it, long or short. And he was very successful doing that. So then he started hiring other traders to join his firm and taught them how to do his method with other companies. And so he built a very successful hedge fund. Now, he's ran into other problems down the road. <laughs> but he built a very successful hedge fund simply becoming an expert on certain stocks and trading that. Just one stock is all he traded, right? Built a whole firm on this. And he had, he had a very interesting process about this, which is that he told his traders, he said, look, you have a daily goal. Your goal is to, to make $1,000. Doesn't matter when you make your $1,000 for the day, you're done. So if right at the open, you invest your capital and your thesis works and you make your $1,000 in the first 15 minutes of the day, doesn't matter what happens the rest of the day. You close out your position, remove all your risk, start working on your trades for the next day. Once you can do that for 30 days straight, now see, here's, the, here's the breaking the chain of X's, Right. Once you can trade and make $1,000 every single day trading, then you can move your goal up, $2,000 a day, whatever it is. But the goal is consistency, right? What, what made Jerry Seinfeld such a great comic? Because he was consistent and dedicated to his craft every single day of the year. What made Steve Cohen and other great traders masters of the craft. They were dedicated to their craft. And the goal was to be dedicated to it every single day and not break that chain of success. So this is, you know, when you think about, you know, your money, your career, your business, you know, this is always the interesting thing. People will, you know, always get questions from people and say, well, I'm thinking about going to business for myself. Fantastic. People who start businesses are people who are at the upper end of the income scale by and large most of the time. Unfortunately, about 80% of businesses fail within the first couple of years. Why is that? It's generally for a couple of reasons. One, they're undercapitalized to start with. Two, maybe the idea is not that great. I'm not sure how many people actually want to buy widgets. You know, we all talk about making widgets. Not sure how many people actually buy widgets. Okay. But three, 
the problem becomes more often than not that it's not the idea of the business. And while capitalization is a very important part of the business, part of that capitalization problem comes from the third component, which is the individual. The majority of the time, out of those 80% failures of small business startups, the majority of the time, it comes down to the person starting the business. And there's a couple of mistakes that they make. The first is they think that they're going to start this business and they're going to work less than what they, you know, they were working a 40-hour job working for the man previously. And they're going to start this business and they're going to put in 20 hours, right? They need more time on their own, right? They need more freedom. And so they don't realize that when you start a business, it's an 80-hour-a-week job. It's a 100-hour-a-week job. It's a 120-hour-a-week job. People ask me all the time, it's like, Lance, you know, every time I email you at like 1 o'clock in the morning, you email me back, you're still working? Yeah, a lot of times. You know, my days are 12, 14, 16 hours, not unusual. And it's also on Saturdays, on Sundays, not unusual. Because that's what it takes to be successful at your job. And it's, it's a function of dedication. You've got to love what you do. First of all, that helps a lot. But you've got to be dedicated to it. You've got to put in the 10,000 hours, right? The other problem that people make <clears throat> is that they start their own business. And so they were making $100,000 a year before whatever company they were working for. And then they start their business and they're going to immediately start taking a salary of $120,000 out of the business. And that's all fine, except the business isn't generating $120,000 a year in excess profits for you to take that money out of. And so people very quickly go out of business because the company runs out of capital. You know, maybe they raise some capital from family or friends. They wind up paying themselves, in a, you know, an, an abnormal size salary, drain the company of all the reserves before the chance ever has the company ever has a chance of getting off the ground. It's going to take a couple of years, three or four years, to build a business and to be successful with it. It takes time. It's like growing. A, it's like growing a garden, right? You plant the seed, and you got to work the hell out of the out of, out of the farm before it actually starts producing on a regular basis. But those are the mistakes that people make. But again, when you come back to the very basics of it, you've got to understand that being successful in business, and, and you talk to anybody that's been in business, they'll tell you the same thing. It's not just me. I mean, ask anybody that started a business. They're going to tell you, yeah, the first few years, you're going to work your ass off. You're going to starve, but it's worth it. If you can do it, it's worth it because... If you take a look at the majority of people around this country that have built wealth for themselves, that's exactly how they've done it. You know, there's an old saying that, boy, that guy, he was an overnight success. It only took him 10 years, but he was eventually an overnight success. But that's the way it always occurs. So when you think about doing this and, and and doing anything, whether it's starting your own business, starting your own company, going out on your own, it's a great idea. It's an awesome idea. It's a way to build real wealth for you and your family. Just understand that to be successful, you've got to be Jerry Seinfeld and you've got to commit to it every single day and never break that chain of access. 
All right, wraps up the show for the day, of course, and we'll be back tomorrow for Technically Speaking Tuesday. New article out on the website today as well. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Newsletters are out as well from this past weekend talking about the markets, your money, and how to invest right now on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. It's a rich man's world.